Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. And boy, we are, we're, we're here at the end. We're finishing up the book of Romans. And boy, what a journey it has been. Uh, again, the book of Romans, uh, considered one of the greatest letters that have ever been written. Romans is many, uh, there's many people that consider Romans their favorite book in the Bible. Again, if you can have a favorite book in the Bible. But it's just so chocked full of truth, uh, theology, and, and doctrine, and it's just so helpful and encouraging. And as we've studied through it, man, it really has been a joy. And Paul just so masterfully lays out just uh, the truth uh, through these uh, 16 chapters. And, you know, we began uh, way back at the beginning. Paul starts out in the first five verses of the book of Romans, just discussing justification. Justification. What is justification? Justification means just as if I had never sinned. See, here's the thing. As humanity, we have this big giant thing that stands between us and God called sin. Uh, it, It causes death. It breaks fellowship with God. And so in order to be restored, man, something had to be done with that sin. We need to be justified. Our sin needed to be dealt with. Not just covered, but, but dealt with as if we've never even sinned ever. And so Paul takes the first five chapters discussing justification. Boy, how uh, and why? Why do we need to be justified? And Paul, he, he pulls no punches. From the very beginning of Romans, man, he addresses all of humanity from, you know, the, the pagan heathen who just flat out rejects God to the, the moralist, the do-gooder who thinks that he can get to heaven based on his own good works, to the pious religious Jew who thinks that he's got all of religion cornered. Paul says, no, listen, you are all in dire need of a Savior. You all need to have your sins forgiven. You all need to be justified. And Paul walks us through that process. What does that look like? How does it happen? Uh, The wages of sin, they're death. We were born with them. Adam passed sin down to us. We were born in sin. But... But Jesus died on the cross in our place. See, there was a penalty that was owed for sin. But Jesus paid it. He was the propitiation. We talked about all these things. He was the penalty paid. See, God couldn't just turn a blind eye towards sin. God couldn't just wink at sin and say, "Ah, I guess I'll just let you off the hook because he's a righteous God. He can't just sweep sin under the carpet. Sin has to be paid for. And so Jesus paid for our sin. He took our sin upon himself and he imputed his righteousness to us. That is, he charged his righteousness to our account. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a transaction that took place. And in believing in that transaction, that's how we're saved. We're saved by grace, through faith. And so Paul breaks all of this down for us through five chapters and really explains justification. This is how you must be saved Sin stands between you and life, between you and God, and there's only one way to deal with your sin, and that's by putting your trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross whereby your sin was transferred to him and his righteousness was transferred to us. Believe, confess, and you'll be saved. Great. Now what? We're saved. That's it. God's done with us. He might as well just take it to heaven. Nope, that's not the way it works. Then Paul takes the next couple chapters, chapters... uh, one through five, what, six and seven, seven and eight, we're right around there somewhere. And we, he discusses, it's six through eight. He talks all about sanctification. Verses one through five were justification, then chapters six through eight, all about sanctification. That is, now what? You've been saved, but man, we all know when we got saved, there was still work to do. I always say this, it would be great if the day I got saved, man, I was done wrestling with sin. That my life just magically got perfectly cleaned up and I was never tempted, I never struggled, and everything was great. It's not the case. When we get saved, there's still a work to do. And that work is called sanctification. Really what sanctification means, it means set apart. And so we are sanctified. We've been set apart. We are positionally in Christ. We've been set apart by Jesus. We're in him positionally. 
robed in his righteousness. But presently, we're being sanctified. That, that, that process continues on. Uh, you know, Paul uses the illustration that, you know, we're like clay and God is the potter. It, it, there's this work where he's molding us and shaping us and pruning us and, and he's working things into our lives that need to be there and things out of our lives that ought not be there. And so uh, we've been sanctified. That is, we're positionally sanctified, robed in Jesus's righteousness. We're presently being sanctified in this life. The Lord is working things into us and out of us. And, and in the future, we will be presented as sanctified. We'll be presented as as blameless, set aside. And so 6, 7, and 8 are all about that process of sanctification. Oh, we've been saved, justified, chapters 1 through 5. Then that process whereby the Lord is changing us. He, he, he's, he's building character into our lives, making us more and more like his son Jesus. And in those chapters, Paul explained to us, man, we're free. We are free from sin. We're free from death. We're free from the law. We're free to live out our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. How? Because we've died. We've died with Jesus. We identified with his death, with his burial, and with his resurrection. And a dead man, he's not bound to the law. Dead man isn't tempted to sin. And so, man, Paul goes through all of these truths, these very important doctrines, the, the, the bedrock of our faith. This is what Christianity is all about. This is what we believe as Christians. And then he continues on. After you know, establishing justification, building on top of that sanctification, and then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, boy, he really demonstrates for us the, the surety, the assurance, the security that we have. Right, Romans chapter 8, the, like the central chapter in the book of Romans, right? the, the end of this section of sanctification. Paul begins chapter 8 by saying, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? All of our past sins have been dealt with. There's no condemnation anymore. Jesus paid the price. The beginning, uh, or the, the middle of the book of Romans, Paul says, all things work together for good for those who love God, we're called according to his purpose. Not only have our past sins been dealt with, but our current circumstances, good or bad, the Lord is working out for good. He has our past taken care of. Our present is working together for good. And our future, the end of Romans, there in uh, verse 35, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Who can separate us from the love of God? And the answer to that is, is nothing. Uh, our, our future is secured. Nothing can rip us out of God's hands. So our past sins have been dealt with. Our present circumstances, God is working together for good. Our future, there's this nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then how do we, how do we know for, for real? Like, where does the rubber meet the road? How do we know that I can't somehow mess up God's promises to me? How do I know that, boy, if I just blow it to, to just the, the extreme that God won't forsake me and say, well, you know what? You know what? Deal's off, man. Uh, I'm done with you. you. You took it too far. Well, we have chapters 9, 10, and 11 that deal primarily with Israel. But although they deal with Israel, the topic concerning Israel is that God is not done with his people. He made promises to Israel. Israel completely blew it, but God is going to see them through. And in that, we understand and know that God, if he keeps his promises to them, he keeps his promises to us. He's faithful even when we are faithless. So Paul lays this out for us. Man, all of this beautiful doctrine, boy, uh, justification, sanctification, the surety that we have. And then after he gets done laying this foundation of doctrine, uh, why do we believe what we believe? What is the bedrock of the Christian faith? Great. We have all of this information. Now what do we do with it? We apply it. And Paul begins to show us and teach us just how to live the Christian life practically, beginning in chapter 12. And he starts with the most important. How do we practically live in relationship to God? Again, relational theology. That is, every single relationship in our lives is dependent upon our relationship with the Lord first and foremost. If our relationship with the Lord is out of sync, boy, it's going to be very difficult 
to, to be a good husband and a good wife and a good dad and a good employee. But when we are in tune, plugged into the Lord, living according to the power of his Holy Spirit, boy, things are, are, are much easier. And so that's where Paul starts this section beginning in chapter 12 of practical Christian living. He says, man, first and foremost, man, let your lives be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And then Paul gets into how we're to serve the Lord practically with our giftings, how we're the body of Christ. And then Paul gets into just the, the practical uh, just living. How do we respond to our neighbors? We love them as ourselves. Uh, we're loving and forgiving and we're humble. And then we get into how we are to uh, really live with and uh, respond to each other in relationship as the church. And that's kind of where we are. We're in verse 13 of chapter 15. And now here we are. Boy, this is the tail end. We've, we've really already gone through this section of how we are to respond to each other as, as Christians in the church. You know, the church body is made up of a lot of different people, different backgrounds, different cultures, uh, you know, different experiences. We're all at different levels of maturity, and that can cause great tension, especially when it comes to personal convictions. And so Paul has been just showing us how is it that we get along? How are we designed to live together as the body of Christ? And Paul really, in a nutshell, said, listen, uh, weaker Christians are not to judge the, the stronger Christians. We're not to judge each other. And, and the stronger Christians are not to, to put the, the weaker Christians in a place where they could stumble. And all of us are, are, are to live in accordance with our conscience. That is, none of us should violate our consciences. Uh, very clearly, Paul says, you know, we should live according to the law of liberty, to the, the law of love, and we should bear with one another. Not put up with each other, but bear up under one another. Help each other out. Support each other. As we, you know, live this Christian life, as we're linked together by the blood of Jesus. I love what David said as he, he began to, to lead worship tonight. He said, man, a lot of us, we, we wouldn't even have relationships with each other. We wouldn't even know each other if we weren't knit together by the blood of Jesus. As we're knit together by the blood, we have that in common, which is the most important. But our differences, we're not to let those rule the day. And we're not to judge. We're not to cause each other to stumble. And we're not to violate our consciences, but we're to build each other up and help each other to grow in the Lord. And so now we pick up tonight uh, in chapter 15 and verse 13. And verse 13 is kind of the conclusion to this section of how we live uh, with each other as the church, uh, which is the conclusion of practical living. And then we'll get into verse 14, which is the beginning of the conclusion of the whole entire book. So lots of conclusions tonight. So that sums up like, you know, all right, here we go. We're all on the same page now. We've got, uh, we've, we've got the reminder where we've been. Now we're going to start diving into the conclusions. And we'll start in verse 13 of chapter 15. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now this is his conclusion in that section. Man, now you have uh, laid all the doctrine out for you. Justification, sanctification, the security that you have. We've talked about how to, to live this Christian life uh, just practically. And then he, he says, listen, uh, now go, go and do it. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul talks about these things. Man, joy. Go forward in joy. We talked about this on Sunday. The, a joy that uh, really is inexpressible. The joy that we talked about in 1 Peter. That even when things are difficult, we can have this joy. Uh, peace. We talked about on Sunday. Philippians 4, 6. The peace that surpasses understanding that we can have. And who fills us as we live out this Christian life practically? Well, where does that joy, where does that peace come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. So Paul says uh, that you would be filled uh, with peace and joy by the Holy Spirit. Peace, joy, and hope. Uh, so this practical Christian living, biblical Christian living, man, it doesn't happen. Again, it's been like... Uh, 
my preface every time we, we talk about this practical Christian living is that it's not something we do in our own strength. It's not something that we do in our own efforts. Whether it's honoring God or living sacrificially to God, whether it's loving our neighbor as ourself, man, whether it's walking in humility or forgiveness or obedience to the governing authorities, uh, loving each other within the church, none of those things come natural in our carnal nature. Our carnal nature says, me, mine, selfish, 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 selfish. But it's the Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us to live that life. And so uh, when we live our lives, you know, just trying to strive to check off religious boxes, man, what we're going to find is we're going to be very frustrated. We're going to be very, uh, very tired. Uh, and man, it's just going to be a drag. The Christian life would be a burden. But when we live out our Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know what we find? Man, it's wonderful. It's great. We have joy in the midst of difficulty. We have peace that doesn't make sense. We have this hope that we just can't shake. And that's what Paul says as he concludes this section of just uh, good old practical living. And now, as we uh, begin chapter f- or verse 14, we're, we're kind of just engaging. This is Paul's just closing up the whole entire letter. And so verse 14 Paul says, Now, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. So Paul is bringing this letter to a close now. And he says, listen, you guys, you know, uh, you are full of, I'm confident uh, concerning my brethren, you guys are full of goodness and full of knowledge and and able to uh, admonish one another. Paul's saying, man, You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. He's, I got confidence in you. I know you guys can do it. He he just brings some encouragement. He says, you guys are are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. Now, can we take this scripture and use it to, to say that people are all basically good? Right? Look, Paul says they're full of goodness. Now, remember, this is under the umbrella that they're living their life full of the Holy Spirit. In and of myself, there's nothing good that dwells within me. Only God. Only by the Holy Spirit. But really, this this section, as Paul's finishing up, he's saying, man, listen, I've written these things to you guys. I know you guys are fully capable of building each other up. I know you guys know how to love one another. Man, go do it. Get it done. Let's go. He's just increasing. I'm just reminding you guys. I'm just encouraging you guys. We all need somebody in our lives who's in our corner that says, dude, you got this. Come on, let's go. You got this. Come on. And that's really what Paul is doing in this section. He said, I'm reminding you. I'm encouraging you. But then, chapter 15, he says, nevertheless. Right? I'm I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to remind you of what you already know. But nevertheless, he says, I'm writing to you uh, rather boldly. Right? Nevertheless, brethren, I have written to you more boldly on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me, God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I know you can do it. I know you have it in you, but I wrote to you boldly because I have a responsibility. Paul wrote boldly in Romans. I think that's one of the reasons I love it so much. There's not a lot of flowery speech. There's not a lot of, of uh, you know, analogy used. He just gets to the point. It's just meat and potatoes the whole way through. 
And Paul says, I've spoken boldly to you guys because I have a responsibility as a minister to the Gentiles. That was Paul's responsibility. He was called to preach the truth to the Gentiles, that there might be an offering of Gentiles to offer up to the Lord. What does that mean, an offering of Gentiles? It's very Old Testament, very priestly sort of language. The, The priests in the Old Testament They would prepare a sacrifice, an offering acceptable unto the Lord. And Paul is saying, out of the Gentiles, boy, as I preach the gospel, as they get saved, boy, those who get saved, they're going to be uh, an offering acceptable to the Lord, that his work would not be in vain, that as he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, that there would be fruit. And Paul says, in order for there to be fruit, man, I need to hold fast to the responsibility that God has given me in his grace to be a minister to the Gentiles. And that means preaching boldly. That means saying the difficult thing. He understood that he had that responsibility to speak the hard truths, not just the easy truths. And boy, Paul, he didn't pull any punches. But he came right out swinging, saying, man, you're all lost. You're all toast. You are all hopelessly lost without Jesus. I don't care how amazing you think you are, you're lost in sin. But Paul preached the truth boldly. And, you know, I thought, man, what a good example for us today. To preach the truth boldly. You know how often Paul offended people with the truth? Man, he ticked people off so bad that they threw rocks at him. That they kicked him out of town. That they threw him in jail. When's the last time you offended somebody so bad they threw you in jail? Or threw rocks at you, hopefully not recently. But Paul said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the truth. And even if it's dicey, even if it's sketchy, even if people don't want to hear it, because I have that responsibility. And that's such a good word for us today because we live in a world today, man, of safe spaces and cry rooms and, uh, you know, words are violence. If there is an ideology or... Uh, something that we hold to that might be offensive to somebody. Oh, that's violence against me. And it's a nutty world that we live in. And that, that has crept into the church. We've become more concerned with not offending people than we have proclaiming the truth boldly because the truth is offensive. The gospel is offensive, you guys. It, it, it comes against us. It says, you are toast unless you trust Jesus. The news that we're condemned is not good news, but the news that Jesus has saved us, boy, that's great news. But here's the thing, nobody really cares about the good news until they know the bad news, right? Nobody cared about the lifeboats on the Titanic until the ship started to sink, and then it was too late. People need to understand, and we need to be bold. Now, I'm not suggesting that we put on sandwich boards and stand on the corner or, you know, go online and become keyboard warriors and start arguing with every Muslim that we can find or anything like that. I'm just saying, well, don't let society pigeonhole you into silence saying, boy, what you have to say about Jesus is offensive and you're not allowed to say that. And let's be like Paul and say, you know, we have a responsibility, man, to be a, a light to uh, those who are perishing. Paul says, listen, guys, man, uh, I've spoken. Uh, I know that you can, you can do it. I know that God is with you, but I've spoken boldly with you because I have uh, a responsibility. And so when people uh, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus after Paul spoke very boldly, boy, he was able to just say, hey, listen, I glory in the Lord. That's what Paul says in verse 17. And I glory or I brag in the Lord. He says, Man, I know you guys can do it. I've, I've spoken boldly because I have this responsibility. Therefore, I have the, this reason to glory in Jesus in the things which pertain to God. And he talked about, man, just that reality that the way the Lord had worked through his life, the miracles that God had performed in his life that had led people to salvation, that that was of the Lord, that Paul couldn't take credit. And you know what? Neither can we. And that's the cool thing. When we boldly proclaim the truth of the Lord, and when people get saved, Man, I tell you what, it is an amazing place to be. You stand back and say, whoa, Lord, that is so crazy. I can't believe you would use my life to that degree. That you would use me and the way that I preach the truth boldly to see people saved for all of eternity. And you know, oftentimes people will come up to me after church and say, man, thank you. That word really, you know, it, it hit home with me this morning or this evening. And, 
And I say the same thing almost every single time. I say, man, thank you for the encouragement, but praise the Lord. Man, I wish I could take credit, but I can't. And I truly can't. Uh, God gets all the glory, and I boast in that. It's amazing what the Lord will do through us when we uh, speak uh, boldly. And, and Paul, he, speak, he, he spoke, he preached. He preached boldly. Uh, from Illyricum to Jerusalem, right? That's saying uh, all the way around and back again, right? This is whole loop. Remember, Paul went on three huge missionary journeys, man, over a course of like 10 years, 10,000 is a conservative number. Some scholars say that it was more like 14,000 miles that Paul went on, but he went, and wherever he went, he preached the gospel, and he preached it uh, boldly. And, uh, you know, Paul says, I've gone to these places. That was uh, kind of Paul's model for ministry was to go places where Jesus had never been preached, right? He said, I'm not building on another man's foundation. I'm going where Jesus has never been preached before. He had a lot in common with Star Trek. He wanted to boldly go where no man has gone before. And that was it. And he brought the gospel to people who had never heard it. Now, there's nothing wrong with building on another man's foundation, that there's nothing wrong with ministering to people that other people have ministered to. The Bible says some plant, some water, and then some get to harvest, but it's the Lord who gives the increase. And sometimes we're in that planting phase, and sometimes we're in that watering phase in ministry. Sometimes we get to be in the harvesting phase, which is glorious, but the Lord gives the increase. Uh, but it is, it's neat to lead people back to the Lord as a pastor. Uh, you guys, I'm sure, have experienced the same thing. Uh, people who have wandered away from the Lord for whatever reason, and you're able to bring them back into a restored relationship. But there's something that's so special. When you share Jesus with somebody who's never accepted Christ, and they get saved, man, it's just a wonderful thing. And Paul was like, that's my game. That's what I'm into. I just want to share Jesus where no one has heard about him before. And then he, he quotes uh, from the second half of Isaiah 52, uh, there in verse 21. And he says, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. And that was kind of like his, his life verse, man. He said, I'm going where they haven't heard. That's what I'm going to do. That was his goal. And uh, that's what he did. And that particular style of ministry was the thing that actually kept him from visiting the Romans. Remember, Paul has this burning desire in his heart to go to Rome. And he wrote this letter. He wrote it from Corinth. And he opens up this uh, book of Romans by saying, man, I desire to come with you, I, to come and spend some time with you. I desire to have some fellowship with you that we might encourage one another. Uh, and then now Paul in verse 22, he begins to, to make those plans to come and see them and to share those plans with them. Verse 22 says, for this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. The reason that he's been uh, preaching roundabout in these parts of the world where no one has ever heard the gospel. Verse 23, but now, no longer having a place in these parts, his work there has been accomplished, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may, be enjoy, or first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, man, I've got these plans. This is what we're doing. And I'm heading to uh, Spain, and on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop by, and I'm going to see you. Again, like we talked about on Sunday, Spain is the, the western edge of the Roman Empire. That was just like the edge of the, the world as far as Paul was concerned. And so that's where he was going. And on his way to Spain, he was going to stop in Rome. But first, he had to stop in Jerusalem. Why was Paul going to stop in Jerusalem? And you might remember this if you studied through Acts with us. This was at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, and he was headed back to Jerusalem, really for two reasons. He was going to check in with the, the leaders of the church that were there at Jerusalem. Hey, uh, you know, he's been on this mission trip for six years now. How's it going? He was going to check in and give a report. 
but also he was bringing an offering, an offering that the uh, Gentile saints from Asia Minor and Macedonia and Achaia there in Greece, they had put together an offering. They had given money to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And so Paul, he, he talks about this offering kind of as an obligation, right? That there was this obligation because the, the Jews had blessed the Gentiles spiritually. And so now it was an obligation for the Gentiles to bless the Jews monetarily or materially. And those kids are having a blast in there. It is their Christmas party. So that, that's great. But Paul, this, this offering that he took, it, it, was, it was fruit. Uh, it wasn't loot. It wasn't something that was forced. It was voluntary. And it was delivered to them there in Jerusalem just to bless them. But there is truth to what Paul says. Right? There is a debt really owed to the Jew, especially from us Gentiles. You think about it. If it weren't for the Jews, we wouldn't be saved. Uh, the Bible is a very Jewish book that talks about a, a, a Jewish uh, Messiah to a Jewish people. Uh, you know, the Bible was not written to you, and it was not written to me. It was written for us, but it was not written to you, and you need to remember that when you're studying. Who was it written to? What was the context? It was written for our benefit, absolutely, but it was written to the Jewish people, and we have been, what, grafted in. We have been adopted into that family. Uh, there is a, a debt. There's a, a gratitude that we should have, and we, we shouldn't forgive that. And, and Paul talked about this when he was in that section, uh, 9 through 11, talking about uh, Israel and how God is not done with Israel. There's a warning in there to the Gentiles. Hey, don't be ignorant that you've been grafted in. Don't forget your place. And also, don't be boastful. Don't be ignorant and don't be boastful. But we, we should have that same burden for Israel, to pray for them, and to support them. And I want you guys to know that if you contribute to church here, you, you support Israel. We, are, we, we give faithfully to the Joshua Fund. Uh, and that's what they are all about, is praying for and preaching the gospel to Jews in Israel. And it's super important that we understand that. Man, we owe a lot to the Jews. It's the heritage that we've been adopted into. And we live in a day and age where anti-Semitism is off the charts. Again, since the, the terrorist attacks in October, man, anti-Semitism has increased 400%. 400%. That's crazy. And again, I shared with you guys this last uh, Wednesday night, I think. The, the, there were the, just recently these presidents of these prestigious universities brought before Congress. And they were asked point blank, hey, does calling for the genocide of the Jewish people violate any of your policies? And each one of these presidents from Yale and Penn State and MIT looked just straight-faced into the eyes of this congressman and said, depends on the circumstances. What do you mean it depends on the circumstances? Calling for the genocide of a people depends on the circumstances? Right? And, and so it's important in this culture that sways back and forth about who the Jewish people are that we remember that there's a debt to pay in Paul reminds those uh, people of that. But he says, first, I gotta go to Jerusalem. And then after Jerusalem, then I'm headed to uh, see you guys in Rome and then to Spain. But how did that go? Right, this was kind of our launching point, verse 24, on Sunday. We said, we looked at this plan that Paul made to go to Spain and then on his way to Spain, go to Rome. How did it go? Did he ever make it to Spain? There is no biblical evidence that Paul ever made it to Spain. Again, like we talked about on Sunday, there is extra biblical sources that say he made it. Church tradition says that he made it, but there's nothing in scripture that says he made it. Did he make it to Rome? 100%, he sure did. But he did not go to Rome as a free missionary to share the gospel. No, he went there in chains to plead his case before Caesar. Because when he was in Jerusalem, man, preached in the gospel is what he did, and he ruffled feathers, and he was arrested and he spent years incarcerated, being, uh, you know, from captor to captor, from Roman centurion to governors to governors to kings. And then finally he made it to Rome, really in chains, where he waited again for uh, a couple more years. But we, we talked about that on Sunday. What do we do when the plans that we have made for our lives don't pan out? 
What do we do when everything starts to fall apart? Man, we've prayed, we've planned, and then everything falls apart. And we looked at Paul's life from a 30,000-foot view and say, how is it that Paul was able to roll with the punches? How was it that Paul was able to maintain joy and peace through all of it? And we said, man, Paul, he never lost hope. He never let despair and fear get the best of him, but he maintained that joy and that peace that surpasses understanding. Paul never lost hope. Paul never lost heart. Paul never gave up. He never called it quits. Man, he encountered so much opposition, nobody could have blamed Paul for saying, all right, enough's enough. I've been shipwrecked, beaten, incarcerated, thrown out of town. Enough's enough. Maybe this isn't the life for me. But he never gave up. He never lost heart, he never lost hope, and he never lost sight. Paul never lost sight of what was important. He never lost sight of why he was doing what he was doing. He never lost sight of the fact that God is in control, that God has a plan, that God was going to see him through. He never lost sight of Jesus. And so that was a good lesson for us on Sunday. Man, what do we do when our plans don't work out? Man, don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Don't lose sight of what's important. And Paul, he really didn't. And so, verse 30, uh, through the end of chapter 15, Paul says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God, for that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And, and uh, so Paul, as he's sharing with the, the Romans there from Corinth, his plans to go to Spain, but first to stop off in uh, Jerusalem before he comes to see them, he says, pray for me while I'm in Jerusalem. Pray for me. He sensed, he understood that there were going to be those in Jerusalem who were opposed to him. Everywhere Paul went, they were were called Judaizers. They were those that said, no, you can't just become a Christian. You have to become a Jew first. Another thing that Paul's preaching, man, it's not true. And and they were trying to steal those who were converted to Christianity from Paul. But Paul sensed that there could be a hindrance. So he said, man, pray with me. Labor with me in prayer. And we talked last week about the importance of prayer. How the, 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 the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. That when we pray, circumstances change. And we see it all throughout the Bible. Hannah was barren. She prayed. She had a baby. Uh, Peter was in prison. The church prayed. The angel broke him out. Hezekiah was sick. He prayed. And uh, he, he was healed and was given 15 extra years of life. When we pray, our circumstances change. And oftentimes, when we pray, our, our perspective changes as well in our heart. We talked about the story of Elisha. When Elisha and him and his servant, they were cornered there and, and the whole army of Assyria was, had them pinned. And Elisha's servant went out and looked and said, oh man, we're outnumbered. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, show him what is really up. And Elisha's eyes, his servant's eyes were open and he saw the, the army of God there protecting him. When we pray, things change. So important. Paul understood the power of intercessory prayer. Paul Prayer just changes things. And you say, well, wait a second. Actually, Pastor Jeremy, it didn't work for Paul because Paul prayed and then he had all the church in Rome praying and he still got locked up. It didn't work out. Well, here's the thing with prayer. Sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> we pray, Lord, give me safe travels. And then I get a flat tire and I say, well, come on, Lord. I say, Lord, please give me this house. And then escrow f- falls through and I say, what? Come on, I prayed. I'll tell you this right now and we're running out of time and so I won't linger on this point. But some of the best answers to prayer in my entire life have been no. In the moment, I say, Lord, how could you say no to this? But then as I look back on my life, those are some of the answers I'm the most grateful for that the Lord said, no, son, I'm going to give you what you need and not what you want. He knows what we need. Never forget that. And so that concludes chapter 15, uh, chapter 16. And I know we only have a couple minutes left, but... uh, We'll make our way through this pretty quick. There's, it's just mostly uh, salutation. So verse 1 says, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in uh, Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of. 
For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself. So Phoebe is the one who is delivering this letter from Paul in Corinth to the Romans. Uh, Sincrea is just south of uh, Corinth. It's a seaport. And she is one that Paul is now commending, saying, hey, look, uh, Phoebe's a, a good gal, man. She, she serves in, in the church, servant. That word in the Greek for servant it can mean uh, an official servant, a title that she was a deaconess, or it can mean that she uh, was just a servant, helpful. It can just be used in the general sense. Most scholars believe that she held an official uh, position in the church, and that's why Paul sent, um, sent the letter with her. And so in those days, there were deaconesses, and they ministered to uh, the poor, they trained up these women deaconesses. They trained up the younger ladies on how to be moms and, and how to be good wives. And, and they did all, all, all these, these manner of things. And so Phoebe, Paul says, you guys receive her. She's been helpful to me personally. Uh, receive this letter from her. And if she needs help, man, help her out. Just, just get it done. And then in verse 3 through 16, it's all just greetings. This is Paul's what's up on the end of his letter. Hey, tell everybody what's up for me, Paul says. And he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila, we met them in Acts. Remember, they, uh, they lived in Rome, and then all the Jews got kicked out of Rome. They moved to uh, Corinth. Paul met him there, them there, and they worked together, making tents or being leather workers. Uh, they served each other. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they ministered to Apollos. Remember, raised Apollos up. Uh, they had a church in their home. Uh, just great people. And, uh, you know, we don't know their full story, but we know that they really love the Lord and serve the Lord. Uh, greet my beloved uh, Apanitis, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. He was the first convert there in uh, Asia Minor. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet and and Dronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampelias, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And uh, Stachius, my beloved. Greet Apellus, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the house of Aristobulus. Uh, greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet uh, Tryphena and Trophosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Now, Rufus, uh, remember, remember when Jesus was uh, walking down the, the, the Via Della Rosa and he was carrying the cross and he collapsed under the weight of the, the cross, member of the cross? And they, they grabbed that man, si Simon, and said, Simon, you, you carry Jesus' cross for him. Well, it says that, that Simon was the, the dad of uh, Rufus. So uh, we don't know this is the same Rufus, but if it is, boy, that encounter with Jesus got a hold of his heart and led to his conversion, and not just his conversion, but the conversion of his household also. Greet uh, Rufus, chosen the Lord, and his mother and mine. Uh, apparently Rufus's mother had been a real mother figure to Paul. Greet uh, Asyncritus, uh, Philegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Uh, greet Philologus, Philologus, not a lot of Philologuses. And Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now, evidence that the scriptures are indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? People can't even spell Jeremy, and Paul got every single one of these names right. I didn't say them right, but he spelled them right. So Paul greets all these people. Hey, say what's up to everybody in Rome for me. He had kept track of everybody. And now in verse 17, he gives kind of a final word of warning. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Amen. So Paul says, listen, he says, I want you to, uh, to watch out. I want you to watch out for those who cause division, and I want you to watch out for those uh, who are offended, those who live contrary to the doctrine, the truth of God's word. And he very simply said, those who uh, cause division, who live contrary to God's word, hey, note them, that is, identify them, and avoid them. Uh, they're, they're not to be a part of what's going on. Don't let the, the, the false doctrine, the false teachers come in. Which is interesting because, you know, Paul says in chapter 15, receive each other like Christ received you, or chapter 14. And we talked about that. How did Jesus receive us? Man, with open arms. Jesus received us, like, unconditionally. There was no laundry list of prerequisites. There were no hoops to jump through or expectations to grow, uh, live up to. Jesus simply accepted us, pure grace, knowing, uh, yet bearing with our faults. And he said, come as you are, weak, poor, lost, grumpy, messed up, whatever. But, right, we don't stay that way, right? When we come to the Lord, we don't demand God's doctrine be changed to line up with the way that we want to live our lives. This is important because this is the way that people are coming into the church today. Saying, all right, I love Jesus, but Jesus, your doctrine is going to line up to my lifestyle. We don't come into the fellowship. We don't get saved and then demand God's doctrine change to fit our lifestyle. It's just the opposite. The Lord accepts us with open arms. He says, come broken, beat down, lost, addicted, whatever. But when we come to be saved, Understand this, we come waving the white flag. We come and surrender. We come saying, Lord, my life is yours. Your plan is mine. I'm dying to myself and I'm living for you. And that's an important note to make. And Paul says, those who come into the fellowship, who bring division, who don't live according to the, 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 the truth of God's word, note them and just avoid them. Very plain and simple. And then uh, we'll burn through the rest of this chapter. Uh, those that are with Paul, they, uh, they say hi, greetings from Paul's friends. Timothy, my fellow worker. Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. Uh, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen greet you. Uh, I, Tertius, wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So Paul, you know, he had the thorn in the flesh and he prayed over and over, Lord, remove this from me. And the Lord saw fit to not remove that thorn in the flesh from Paul. And there's lots of speculation about what that is, but Paul the Lord said, Paul, you know, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's what a great lesson that is for us when we're dealing with issues over and over again. We say, Lord, remove this from me. Help me out in this area. Sometimes we have to come to that place, man, it's difficult. We don't like it. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And God's grace is sufficient. It doesn't matter if your life is falling apart. If you live in misery for the rest of your life, God's grace is sufficient for you. And that's the conclusion that Paul came to. But the speculation is that it was Paul's eyes. And this, the fact that uh, Tertius wrote this a greeting was, you know, Paul dictated it, he wrote it down, so it was in his writing. And then Gaius, uh, my host, so he was, that's where Paul lived in Corinth, uh, greets you. Orestus uh, uh, was uh, somebody who was a, a city official, uh, treasurer, or uh, perhaps uh, the head of public works there in Corinth. Uh, Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So they all get to say hi to everybody back home as well. And then just the final benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the word world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, faith. To God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And, uh, and that's it. Uh, Paul closes and says, man, the, this mystery from the beginning of time, hidden in the Old Testament, in the prophets, and in the, the ceremonies, and the rites, and the rituals, and the celebrations, this, this mystery of Jesus in the Old Testament has been made known now in the New Testament. And Paul just stands back at the end of this and says, man, the wisdom of God that, that is in Christ Jesus. The wisdom of, of God's plan for salvation. I mean, just think about it. God's plan that he laid out for salvation to, to save the Jewish people, that they might be a light unto the Gentiles, and then through their failure to save all of the Gentiles, and then to use the Gentiles 
to, to save them, to make them, the Jews jealous, that all my, it, it, it's just, it's, it blows your mind. And Paul says, man, you're so wise, Lord. Your plan of salvation, all the things that we have, have looked at, God's plan, sanctification and justification and security that we have and the application practically, cover to cover the book of Romans, man, it just, it displays God's wisdom. And that's all Paul can say, man, the glory of God, the glory of God. And same for us. And what a, a wonderful book. So many things that we can glean from the book of Romans. And really, man, they say that when your Bible falls down, man, it should flip right open to the book of Romans. That we should be in it so much that it just, whoop, it just naturally is creased there. And it's good. No matter what you're going through in life, you can find answers right there in this book. And so uh, we're done. That's it. We'll, we'll, we'll open up 1 Corinthians uh, here, uh, let's see, next Wednesday night? No, it'll be next Sunday. Oh, that's a good thing. I'm glad I said that. Uh, there is no church next Wednesday night. Uh, we are taking the week off. The staff is. We're going to hang out with our families the week after Christmas. So uh, there is no church next Wednesday night. We will be back at it next Sunday, though. So we're just going to skip midweek service. And then all of, so there's no ladies group. There's no youth group. We're just taking that week off. No men's lunch. Uh, so keep that in mind. And then we'll open up 1 Corinthians next Sunday. And that's cool, too, because where did Paul write the letter to the Romans? From Corinth. What was going on there? Well, we're going to find out in the next episode. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we can gather together in your name. Lord, where we can be encouraged by one another, where we can pray for one another, where we can help each other out, Lord, where we can fellowship with one another and fellowship, more importantly, with you, Lord where we can learn of you and be inspired and encouraged by your Holy Spirit. Lord, where we can hide your word in our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, Lord, as we go out into the lives that you've called us to lead, Lord, that we wouldn't lose our focus. Lord, that we would remember the truths that we learn in your scriptures, in particular in this book of Romans. It's been so chock full of wisdom and truth, even as Paul said. And we just thank you, Lord, for that wisdom, for that truth. And we thank you that you impart it to us only help us apply it to our lives and live by it, Lord, as we go out uh, again, Lord. Thank you that you uh, have a purpose and a plan for us, that it's a good plan, and uh, Lord, that you, you shepherd us and that you're going to see us through. So during this season, this holiday season, Lord, lots of stuff going on. Help us to not lose sight of what really matters, Lord. Help us to shine brightly for you. And again, Lord, we just thank you for tonight. Bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.